0: Because there are a lot of names for Jesus, a lot of names, a lot of titles attributed to him in the New Testament. Because you know a lot of them, I'm sure, if you've been around church very long or if you read the Bible. Some people called him Son of David. People called him Messiah, Christ, Teacher, Rabbi. Everybody called him Lord. His favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. And we saw in Mark 10, probably the strangest title of them all servant. Servant doesn't seem to fit with what we know about Jesus. Everywhere he went, he preached the good news of God's coming kingdom. He healed sick people, cast out demons, and the crowds who traveled behind him saw in him something other than a servant. They saw a magnificent king, somebody who deserved to be enthroned on the most elaborate and ornate throne you could find, the kind of person who would crush his enemies under their feet, who would free Jerusalem from the nasty Romans, who would bring God's rule on earth as it is in heaven. And yet everywhere Jesus went, he shunned that identity. His disciples look for him one day when there's a crowd of people ready to be healed and He's by himself in the desert praying. When they're ready to crown him on the Sea of Galilee, he disappears from among their midst. On the night, he's betrayed. He's gathered with his disciples in an upper room. He doesn't give them triumphant marching orders for kingdom advance. Instead, he takes off his outer tunic. He puts on an apron and gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet. Jesus is a servant. That's what he said to James and John. Son of man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul, Paul says in Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he became obedient. Obedient even to the point of death on the cross. Was this act of service that defined Jesus' life, it was the whole reason he'd come to earth, so that he could offer himself for you on the cross. Is it any wonder then, that a man so committed to service would leave his church instructions on how they should operate together. And he would say, you need a special group of people who are set apart to serve. You're gonna need some servant leaders, some deacons. This morning I wanna talk to you about who those servant leaders are supposed to be. I'm gonna show you four principles that Paul gave Timothy in the passage we just read. And as we work through those, this is what I want you to see. That according to God's blueprint, a healthy church has godly servant leaders who bring direction and focus to specific ministry needs. According to God's blueprint, a healthy church has godly servant leaders who bring direction and focus to specific ministry needs. And I believe that's what we see here from 1 Timothy 3. And if I do my job right, you're going to leave here agreeing with me no, I don't, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but that's my goal anyway. I want us to agree together on what God has spoken to us. So let's get there. Paul begins, he says, deacons must be worthy of respect. Now you need to know that this term deacon is a transliteration of a Greek word. It's not a translation. It's a transliteration. It takes the Greek word diakonos straight into the English word deacon. If you were to translate it, you'd translate it like the translators of Mark 10:45 did, and you'd call it a servant. A deacon is a servant. Diakonos originally referred to somebody who served tables or who had other menial tasks in a household. But in the New Testament, that service was transformed by Jesus's example, so that the apostles themselves called themselves servants. Paul called himself a bond servant of Christ Jesus, and as he looked and thought about the church in Ephesus where he left his young protege, Timothy, to serve. He said, you guys need some deacons. You need some servant leaders who are going to bring direction and focus to specific ministry needs. Some of you all remember this, but Paul had left Timothy back in Ephesus because there were false teachers arising in the church and leading people astray. So he left Timothy there to get the church back on track by number one, focusing on the church's foundation, which is sound doctrine. Paul then moved into the attitudes men and women bring to worship. we ought to pray first, we ought to come before God with humble hearts, submissively ready to learn whatever he wants to teach us. Last week we saw how Paul laid out for Timothy the kind of leaders the church needed. If the false teachers were going the wrong direction, what kind of leaders did they need? Also, they needed shepherd leaders, men who were set apart to lead the church by teaching and shepherding them towards gospel faithfulness and embodied all that it meant to be faithful to Jesus themselves. And so as Paul starts to lay out this second group, not the overseers anymore, but the deacons, he continues painting this picture of the kind of leaders they're going to be. The first principle I want you to see this morning is that like these church's shepherd leaders... The church's servant leaders must embody gospel faithfulness. The church's servant leaders must embody gospel faithfulness. I Just for a show of hands, how many of you like to fill in the blanks as we go through the sermon? Okay, this is your first blank. You don't want to get out of here and have to ask me afterwards, hey, I need number one again. That's embarrassing for you. I don't mind it, but I don't want you to feel ashamed. Your first, your first point is that a church's servant leaders embody gospel. That's, I, that's how I know you were sleeping. A church's servant leaders embody gospel faithfulness. Now, here's how Paul says it. A deacon should be worthy of respect. A deacon should be worthy of respect. Last week, we walked through the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we walked through each of the character qualities Paul laid out for overseers. It got long, it got tedious. That was the longest sermon I've preached in a very long time, and I thank you for your commitment to sticking it out and seeing it through. Thankfully for you and me, Paul doesn't go into that much detail when he comes to deacons. Instead, he says they should be worthy of respect. One commentator, George Knight, says that in this one word, Paul captures all the positive traits he outlines for overseers and brings them under one-heading. They should be worthy of respect. They should be the kind of people that when you look at their lives, you see in them what is admirable and good. They have developed the kind of character that is worthy of respect. But Paul also identifies three potential stumbling blocks for these servant leaders. I know you saw them. Number one, Paul said they can't be hypocritical. They're not hypocritical. Literally, he says, they can't be double-tongued. Deacons can't be the type of people who say one thing but mean another, or who speak out of both sides of their mouth, or who tell you to your face one thing, but behind their back their fingers are crossed. They got to be straightforward and to the point, not hypocritical. Paul also says they can't be given to much wine. Like the overseers, deacons can't be under the control or slavery to alcohol and alcohol's influence. Alcohol destroys people's lives. It makes us think fuzzily, not clearly, with good wisdom on what God would have us do. So they can't be given too much wine. And number three, Paul says, they can't be greedy for gain. And I believe that's kind of hinting out what the role of deacons is in the church, that oftentimes as they bring direction and focus to specific ministry needs, they're entrusted the church's funds, maybe to care for widows, or to provide for the poor. And they need to be people of high moral character, people you knew weren't gonna embezzle or defraud the church of its funds, people who could be trusted with money. Then Paul says they need to hold the mystery of the faith with a sincere conscience. Now this mystery, we're gonna get into the details of next week when we get to verse 16. What I believe Paul means are the essential truths of the Christian faith. What do we believe as the people of God? We believe that the God who made our world and created us for a perfect relationship with him saw us in our sin and rebellion, and rather than wiping us off the face of the earth and judging us at the start, instead showed incredible patience and kindness. And then, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, born under the the law born of a woman to redeem those who are under the law so that in him we might receive adoption as sons he accomplished this by living a sinless life and dying on the cross as a ransom for all and that he was buried in the tomb and was really dead and that on the third day God spoke the word and raised him up to life And that after spending 40 days with the disciples he ascended into heaven from where he sent his Holy Spirit to indwell his people and to establish the church and to enable us to live a life that pleases him. And he promises to come back to earth and finish what he started when he will set up his throne and rule the people with justice and equity. And the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Those are the essentials of our faith. That's what the church lives and dies by. Paul says when you're looking for deacons, you need people who really believe this. You're not looking for people who check the box. Yes, I affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 and sign their name on the dotted line. Anybody can do that and believe whatever they want. Paul says a church's servant leaders need to really believe it. They need to know in their heart and believe in their bones that what we say we believe is true. In other words, Paul says, these need to be the kind of people that when you look at their life, they embody gospel faithfulness. The kind of life that results from really knowing God and walking with him. They need to bear fruit of a righteous life, not just give verbal assent to it. And then, of course, in verse 12, Paul says, like the overseers, deacons must manage their own household well and have their children under control in all dignity. But, of course, he continues It's not just that the church's servant leaders need to embody gospel faithfulness, but unlike the church's shepherd leaders, deacons are entrusted with specific areas of ministry. They're given specific areas of ministry to serve in. Now, I say this, but I have to kind of prove this point. This is more of an inference from what Paul doesn't say, argued to a clear example in the Bible of what deacons can do. Now there are two qualifications from the list of overseers that Paul doesn't mention when it comes to deacons, and some of you already know what I'm going to say. Paul said that overseers need to be able to teach, and while deacons need to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, he never says anything about that. He never says that deacons are responsible for teaching. Likewise, though Paul says they need to manage their own household well, he doesn't include the reason for that qualification like he does when it comes to overseers. He said an overseer needs to manage his own household well because if he can't manage his household, how will he take care of God's church? And last week I made a big point about this, that the church's shepherd leaders bring the church towards faithfulness by, number one, teaching us what it means to believe in Jesus and the truths that he would have us live out in the world. And number two, they take care of us by overseeing us and guiding us as a unit towards what God would have us do. They teach and they take care of. And deacons don't do that. Overseers are given a general responsibility, like an umbrella over the whole church. The church's servant leaders are given a small slice. And I believe this because of what the clearest example of deacon ministry in the New Testament tells us. In fact, I want you to look with me at Acts chapter 6. Will you turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 6? They say that's a dangerous thing to ask you to do because you probably won't turn back with me to 1 Timothy 3, but I'm going to take the chance that you will follow me back to 1 Timothy 3 here in just a second. So will you look at Acts chapter 6 with me? This is a season in the church's life when they were growing leaps and bounds day after day, and growing churches often experience some conflict and difficulty. And what was the solution? Who are you going to call? Deacons. And that's exactly what we see happen in Acts chapter 6. So listen what Luke tells us happened in Jerusalem in those days. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews, that's Greek-speaking Jews of a Greek cultural background, against the Hebraic Jews, that's Aramaic-speaking Jews who had always lived in Jerusalem, that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it wouldn't be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So I want to show you why I believe deacons are given to the church by Jesus to meet specific needs, and I want to show you from this passage. Number one, you saw in Acts 6, 1, that a complaint arose. A complaint arose. So I want you to imagine this scene. On the first day that Peter preached the gospel in Jerusalem, 3,000 people got saved. A few years have passed. The church has grown. How many people are they dealing with? And how many widows are there among them? I mean, apparently a lot the church had undertaken a monumental task of making sure that each one of those widows was looked after and taken care of. And the way they did it was they prepared them meals every day. It's like a first century church-based Meals on Wheels. And they went around the community providing a hot meal for every lady in the church whose husband had passed away. And as they were carrying out this task, one group of ladies started to notice that their meals weren't coming as frequently as they ought to have been. And they happened to notice that it was only the Greek-speaking ladies who were being overlooked. And so they discussed it among themselves, and they said, what should we do? And somebody had the great idea. They said, we should talk to the apostles. They were Jesus' hand-selected men, given the task of preaching the gospel and establishing the church. If there's a solution to this problem, they'll know what to do. So they get together and they go to Peter and James and John and they say to them, Hey, what's going on? The meals are getting delivered to all the Jewish ladies, to all the Hebrew speaking ladies, but they're getting missed when it comes to us. What are you going to do about it? And the apostles take stock of the situation. You know, in a time before Excel and databases, and mailing lists, and phone trees, they start to look at the monumental administrative load that getting to each one of these ladies is gonna be on them. And it's not that it's not a good task. It's not that it's something that shouldn't be done. It's very important. James will end up saying, James the Lord's brother will say, that religion that's pure and undefiled before God is this, to take care of widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So taking care of widows is important. But the apostles had looked Jesus in the eye before he ascended into heaven. And they had committed to their master that they were going to preach the good news and make disciples on every corner of the world. And if they distracted themselves from that task so that they could take care of the widows, which was important, they would prove unfaithful to their master's commission. And that wasn't something they were willing to do. They knew their lane. We're going to preach and give ourselves to prayer. We're going to have to find somebody else to look after the widows. And So they call the church together and they say, here's the plan. We want you to choose seven men that you trust. Seven men who have high moral character, relational capital, men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we're going to let them make sure that you never miss a meal again. And so the ladies start talking and they see the men around town and they come up with these seven guys and they bring them before the church the apostles lay their hands on them and pray over them and then commission them to meet a specific ministry need. You seven men, here's your task. You see these sweet widows. None of them should ever miss a meal again. That's your job. We'll do whatever we need to do to support you in your work. Get after it. That's the work of deacons. Now, you need to know, they're never called deacons in this passage. That's an unfortunate truth. I wish they were. Because then going to be a lot tight case, but they are called to serve. And I believe that's what God would have us look to our deacons to do, to meet specific ministry needs. Now you say this, yeah, but Brett, we got about 140 people. We don't have that many widows. Deacons need some other things to do. And I completely agree with you. Take for example, one pastor who wrote in to pastor Matt Smethurst. He included this story in his book on deacons pastor said I pastor an underground church in China and on the Lord's day we gather for worship in a rented hotel ballroom for a while our home groups were assigned on a rotating basis to arrive early and stay late setting up before the service and cleaning up after responsibilities also included preparing the elements for the Lord's Supper and welcoming in new people some complaints arose however for understandable reasons first Not every member belongs to a home group. And so some people never got assigned the task of setting up and tearing down for worship. Second, it's not easy for young families with children to arrive early or leave late. And besides, the kids would often make things messier while everything else was getting cleaned. All of this led some of the single members to feel frustrated because they ended up doing most of the work. I should also mention that we didn't have money to hire a cleaning person, nor would it have been wise to do so for security reasons. Eventually, it became clear, it's not feasible for us to continue the home group rotation system. So we decided to establish a deacon position to solve this problem. We installed a qualified brother into this facility and hospitality role and asked him to develop a plan to solve the problem. He soon presented the plan to our church's leaders, and we approved it. The new system under diaconal leadership is a great improvement. Every member knows their responsibility, and they've been encouraged to love one another more and to better care for families with young kids. For the elders, it's been an excellent opportunity to teach the congregation about sacrifice, love, and faithfulness. That's a deacon raised up to fill and meet a specific ministry need. Now, thankfully, we don't have to set up and tear down our room every week. That was all done long ago by servant hearted people in our church. We just get to show up and worship, and I get to show up and preach. They even have batteries in my microphone. And we don't have to get together during the week to clean our church. We do have the funds to pay someone to do that. But, you know, it takes a lot of work to make even a small church run. Deacons are God's gift to the church to meet those needs. Maybe we don't have a Meals on Wheels program. We don't have to set up and tear down or clean our church, but we do have lots of tasks that need direct focus from servant leaders. I've made you a chart to kind of help you visualize this. Now, Jesus, you know, is the Lord of his church. Christ is the head of the church. And he oversees us And he is our chief shepherd, and he promises to bring us all the way home. But he's given to us leaders to serve, shepherd leaders. The Bible sometimes calls them elders or pastors or overseers. They're given the task of shepherding the flock, of discipling, of teaching and preaching, of organizing and leading worship services, of overseeing groups, ministries, providing leadership to the body the programs of the church, and for keeping us on mission. Those are the shepherd leaders we learned about last week. They teach and take care of God's church. On the other side, you have the servant leaders, deacons, who are tasked with more practical and specific needs, like caring for widows, as our deacons in our church do, of overseeing the church's benevolence ministry and making sure the needs of people in the church and community are met of handling all the ins and outs of our facilities, of providing security for our weekly worship services, of preparing our ordinances, for organizing the hospitality ministry of our church. These are the types of needs that are important and even vital to a healthy church, but that sometimes distract the church's pastor from the work God's called him to do. And so what we need is both. We need shepherd leaders who are called to teach and lead. We need servant leaders who are given specific ministry responsibilities to meet. Okay, principle three. The church's servant leaders involve gifted women in ministry. The church's servant leaders involve gifted women in ministry. You saw that in verse 11 where Paul said, Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Now you notice, like the men, wives are called to be worthy of respect. Word for word, just the same as the deacons. They need to have the kind of lifestyle that manifests itself as having attained to a level of spiritual maturity. But there are a few things Paul says you need to watch out for. They can't be slanderers. They can't be the type of people who spread harsh talk among the body. Deacons often bring unity to the surface when division arises, and so the wives can't undercut the ministry of their husbands. Paul also says that they must be self controlled and faithful in everything. The picture Paul paints, these women involved in ministry, is high moral character. They're embodying gospel faithfulness. That's not, I don't guess, controversial that women should be just as godly as men. In fact, Many of the godliest people I know are women. What's controversial about this verse is the first word, wives. I don't know if your Bible has a footnote in it or if you pay attention to those things. Sometimes they'll have the superscript letter or number, and if you look down at the bottom, it'll offer you an alternative translation or other important facts that discerning Bible readers might need to know. Mine says B, footnote B the women and from a biblical critical perspective as we're trying to understand what the Bible says this word can be translated two ways wives or women it's the same Greek word is it wives or is it women most of the time in the New Testament it's exceedingly clear what the author intends the context tells you okay it's not just a woman not any old woman it's his wife But this passage is not one of those clear ones it's ambiguous and scholars actively debate whether paul is providing a qualification for deacons wives whether he's providing a qualification for women who serve as deacons or as the church came to call them deaconesses like the earlier text on women uh, i don't have time to go through all the ins and outs of this passage I can point you in the direction of some great resources that have helped me in my thinking and trying to weigh the evidence on both sides my seminary professor Tom Schreiner uh, one of the most godly men I know one of the most Bible committed men says this in his commentary on the book of Romans we're gonna talk about Romans in a second he says that virtually every modern commentator believes Paul is giving qualifications for women serving as deacons and not deacons wives and so what I want to do is try to provide you two sides and let you weigh it, okay? You decide what you think is right. You have the Holy Spirit as much as me. You have access to Google, just like I do. So I know that if you care about this, you'll track down some answers. So what you have to do to try to tease out the truth, what God is saying to us in this passage is follow a few lines of evidence. The first line of evidence I would point you to is the grammatical line of evidence that we see right here in 1 Timothy 3, 11. I've told you about it already the word itself can be translated in two ways and oftentimes the context leads you in one direction or the other here's what would have been helpful if Paul was talking to us about deacons wives he could have said their wives he could have included a possessive pronoun he's talking about deacons in verses 8 9 and 10 verse 11 he wants to talk about their wives he could have said their wives he also could have said the wives that would have been a little clearer. Instead, what he says is, Gunaikas, wives or women. You choose, figure it out. That's frustrating. If I can be honest, as a preacher, I want clarity. I want to bring clarity. They say, A miss in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. And I don't think it's kind for me to leave you hazy on what God's word says. So I want to be as clear as I can. And it's hard for me to be clear. When Paul isn't clear, when the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say something that's less clear than I would wish he said it. So there's the grammatical consideration that he doesn't include a possessive pronoun or the article to tell us that he means the deacon's wife. The second thing I would point to grammatically from this text is how parallel verse 11 is with verse 8. So look at verse 8. Paul says, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect. Likewise is important because he's just given us all these qualifications for an overseer or a pastor or an elder, and he's signaling to us with that word, likewise, that he's continuing in the same vein, but he's making a clear turn in the same way. Likewise, just like the overseers, deacons should be worthy of respect. Well, then you notice in verse 11 that Paul says, wives too must be worthy of respect, Greek, likewise. Likewise, wives should be worthy of respect. It's the exact same in verse 8 and verse 11. So Paul's going through all the qualifications for overseers in verses 1 to 7. He signals a turn, but not a complete shift, because he's continuing in the same vein, but also offering a distinction. Now, not overseers, but in the same way deacons. He gets to verse 11, and he says, in the same way as deacons, women should be worthy of respect. The same thing. For me, that's a little bit of evidence leaning in the direction of Paul speaking about women. But you go on, it's not just grammatical, there's also a historical consideration that 50 or 60 years after Paul wrote his letter to to Timothy, another man wrote a letter to another man. The man writing was a guy we call Pliny the Younger, and he was writing a letter to the Roman emperor Trajan. Trajan had sent this Roman official to examine the church, to search out everything he could find out about that group known as the Christians. and So he wrote a letter to Trajan describing what the church did when they gathered for worship and explaining to him the leadership structure of the church. And among the leaders that Pliny identifies 50 or 60 years after Paul wrote 1 Timothy is a group that Pliny calls the Deaconesses. There were women serving in an identifiable role of deaconess 50 or 60 years after Paul wrote his letter. Not only that, there is evidence within the New Testament itself that women were serving in some kind of official capacity in their church. For example, in Romans 16, Paul introduces a woman named Phoebe to the church family in Rome, probably the lady who carried the letter to them. He says, Welcome our sister Phoebe, who's a servant, Diakonos, of the church in Sincre, so you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matters she may require for your help, for indeed she's been a benefactor of many and of me also. Now, this is where Schreiner says that most commentators believe that Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy three, alongside Romans sixteen, mean that he's talking about women serving in the role of deacon. Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincre, now Justin Martyr. The early Greek apologist for Christianity, living in the second century, highlighted this passage. And he said the church in Sincrae was so big they even had women serving as deaconesses. Beyond that, there's one other point I would make, which is just a simple question. Why would Paul include qualifications for deacon's wives, but not for the wives of overseers? If a deacon's wife must be worthy of respect, why not the pastor's wife? We demand a lot of a pastor's wife today, and yet Paul seems to have nothing to say about that. That's strange. You'd expect if deacon's wives are important, so too are pastor's wives. And yet Paul doesn't say anything about that. And so many people would say, then Paul must have something in mind that makes the deacon's role unique, that their wives would need to be worthy of respect. And this is probably the strongest case for translating it as wives. It's this, that deacons' wives are often involved in their husbands' ministry, especially when those husbands need to care for widows in the church. It's useful and helpful and beneficial to have a lady, a godly woman, at his side to serve the needs of the sister. Paul knew that, and that's why he says that deacons' wives must be worthy of respect. They can't be slanderers because deacons are supposed to bring calm. They need to be worthy of respect because they're serving right alongside him and they reflect on the kind of man that he is. Also, you could say that perhaps it's wives because it's sandwiched between Paul's earlier qualifications for deacons and the command that they be managers of their household who manage well. So there's the evidence. I'll leave you to make the final judgment, but I will put this last bug in your ear. One commentator said, However you land, on wives or women, it's obvious Paul was singling out a group of women who served the church in a recognized leadership capacity. And I'm thankful that there are women like that in our church today. Now, we may not call them deacons. We call them ministry team leaders. That's a good unbiblical term, uh, real vague. But they run our hospitality meetings, our hospitality team. Uh, Terry does an excellent job with that. Sue got our baptism stuff ready. Erna Mae, Bobby, y'all have prepared our uh, elements for the Lord's Supper for how many years? I mean, if we didn't have godly women involved in the ministry of our church, we'd fall apart. So call them whatever you want, but they are recognized servant leaders in our church. And we need them. We need to celebrate them. We need to find opportunities to raise up more of them and get them involved in the ministry of our church. Now, the reason many of us feel uncomfortable with what I just said was that for many years in Southern Baptist churches, deacons have served as pseudo-pastors. The deacon board was responsible for the church's finances and the direction of the church. They hired and fired the preacher. They were the men who ran the church, and it was great. They were godly men. They just were more like pastors than they were deacons. And in a church where that's the case, where the deacons are more like pastors than servants, then I think it wouldn't be inappropriate for a woman to serve as a deacon. But in a church like ours, where deacons are recognized servants of the church and aren't responsible for the daily vision and leadership and discipleship ministry of the church, I think God's word here demands a close inspection from people who would want to build a healthy church according to his blueprint. Fourth Fourth principle. Deacons, the church's servant leaders, should be tested and celebrated. We see that in verse 10 and in verse 13. Paul says, let the deacons be tested first. And if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Now, I don't believe by this that Paul means that we need to develop some kind of standardized test that every deacon needs to sit for. So we give them a freshly sharpened number two principle, start a 45 minute clock on the wall. And if you pass, you can serve. What I think Paul means instead is that we should closely examine a man's life. That a deacon is a blessing to the church. He is a servant leader set apart for meeting specific ministry needs. This is not an honorific title given to a man who has standing in the community. This is not a stepping stone to future things. This is not something you can give a guy to see if he'll rise to the occasion. Being a recognized, set-apart, and commissioned servant leader of the church requires early and careful examination of a person's life. You want to make sure that they fit the qualifications that Paul lays out, that they live up to the standard God has set for us in His Word. And not only should they be tested, Paul says, they should be celebrated because they are such a blessing. Paul says in verse 13, those who've served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith That is in Christ Jesus. Listen, deacons are a blessing to the church. You think those widows in Jerusalem were thankful for those seven men? You think the people in this church who get a phone call from the deacon asking them if they're doing okay or if they get a knock on the door from a deacon who cares about them, you think that goes a long way in a person's life? Oh, it can change everything. It can make you feel like you belong. It can make you feel like you're loved. It can make you feel like you're a part of what God is doing at your church. And because of that, deacons usually develop a high degree of influence among the people they serve. They are looked to with respect and admiration. They become servant leaders. Paul says they they discover for themselves a good standing for the faith in Christ Jesus. They can keep their shoulders high, not because they're motivated by the honor and glory that comes with their office, but because wherever they go and however they serve, they prove themselves to be a blessing to God's people. They prove themselves to be just like Jesus, who deserved every accolade and every adoring person's love. Everywhere he went, he showed himself to be a man worthy of honor and respect, a man worthy of the highest praise, the man worthy of the name that's above every name, the name that every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess. And when servants in the church follow in Jesus' footsteps, they ought to be celebrated. Church family, we need people like this. We need recognized servants of the church. I think if we would be a healthy church, we've got to have more of them. I would, I would put it to you like this. If we would be a healthy church, we've got to shun a professionalized view of the ministry that leaves the work to the pastors. And we need to find people among us who can meet specific ministry needs. We need to have our eyes trained on seeing in each other the kind of qualities that Paul outlines in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, we need to say it to each other. Man, I see you going above and beyond to serve the body, and that means so much to me. You are a blessing to me when I see you serve. When you make a pot of coffee, that means a lot to me. When you're here early, straightening up, that means a lot. It shows the kind of care that you have for others, that you'd put their needs above your own. You are showing yourself to be a person conforming to the image of Jesus, sharing his heart for his church. We need eyes to see that and the courage and confidence to say it. We need to have our hearts trained to recognize opportunities for people to serve. I'm the worst at this. I do it all myself if I can. That's my perfectionism. I want to do it my way. I bet you're that way. I bet it's hard for you to ask for help. I bet you feel a little weird calling the deacon of the week, saying, hey, I I just need some extra prayer. I just need somebody to help me out. But we need to have our hearts trained to recognize those opportunities and to let the people God has blessed our church with do the work he's given them to do to meet specific needs in our church family. Is that the kind of church you want to be a part of? Me too. Me too. Let's pray and ask God to help us become it.